Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? You all safely forded the atmospheric river to get here this morning, I see. Yes, thank you for being here, even with the sun not shining. Sometimes that can be an impediment, but not for you. You're here at 830. God bless you. Guys, I'm glad to be with you. We're in this study in the book of Revelation. We're going to be spending a lot of time, like I'm not going to have much time to speak to other things going on in our church community for these couple months because we are packing these times filled with our study. I do want to let you know in the month of February, we're going to be hosting a State of the Church update. So Twice a year, I talk about the vision for the church, the broader view of what's going on in the city of Huntington Beach. We've got a mission here in the city, guys. This isn't just time for us to get together, sing to God, and hear from God's Word. I mean, we are gathered together, linking arms with other churches, really seeking to reach every man, woman, and child in this city for the gospel of Jesus. So I want to keep that in view. One way to do that is to share in the State of the Church update, ministries going on, plans for the future, finances. We like to be a transparent community, talk about what's going on with the budget, talk about what's going on in our giving culture. So look for that, all right? Because I don't have enough time to get to that uh, most weeks here. We're going to jump in right now. There's a lot to get into here in the book of Revelation, the second week of the series. Would you go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 1? If you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand, and one of the ushers will pass one to you. We began this study last week, and I highly recommend that you go back and check it out if you missed it. Not because it's like the greatest message I ever gave or anything like that, but because it's got a lot of helpful tools for you that are going to last throughout the entire study of this book. You know, like I'd, I'd say right now, I'm in the middle of building this outdoor kitchen. Some of you know that. You follow my wife. She's got like a mini HGTV channel following me. I'm like Chip Gaines, but not as talented or as likable. I think in every video, it's me going, are you videoing me? At the start of every video. I haven't really gotten used to it yet. But anyway, one of my next projects in it is I'm going to be stuccoing the sides. And I've done some stucco patching and all that, but I'm going to smooth stucco. This is like the ultimate... Uh, you know, quality stucco finish. And you've got a couple tools that you need. You need a hawk and you need, you know, a float and you need a finished trowel. And that could all be Greek to you. Like, that's totally foreign to you. You don't know what those things are. You don't know how to use them. It's really simple when you get into it. It's not that complicated. It's the same thing with the book of Revelation. You might be starting going, I don't get this. I don't understand it. Well, just listening to that message last week and some things that I'm going to be sharing along the way, there's some simple tools, some simple understandings that are going to help us gain understanding as we go through this study. I can't restate everything that I shared last week, but I do want to just restate the, the summary points that I made at the very end because there's helpful frameworks for us as we continue this morning. Number one, I shared from chapter one of the book of Revelation that we are blessed. The effect on believers in reading the book of Revelation is being blessed. We're going to be happy. We're going to be joyful if we're understanding this book in the correct light. We're not going to be fearful. We're not going to be conspiracy theorists. We're not going to be, you know, having our minds go running late at night. No, we're going to be joyful. We're going to be happy. We're going to be blessed if we're understanding this book the way God wants us to understand it. Okay? Are you guys ready to be blessed today? Are you ready to be happy today? Are you ready to be joyful again today? Because that is going to be the outcome for us in Christ. Number two, if we want that outcome, though, we've got to listen, meaning you've got to show up, you've got to hear it, you've got to study it. We gave you the bookmarks last week. If you didn't get one, grab one so that you can listen to it, go on the podcast, and take it to heart. 
We've got to do the work. We've got to work through the metaphors and the symbols. We've got to overcome, you know, our anxieties about the study. We've got to really apply ourselves and our lives to it if we want to experience that joy and blessing. And then number three, we have to understand that the book of Revelation is just as much about God's present involvement and power in the world today as much as it is about his future involvement and power. A lot of people focus on the future aspects of the book of Revelation, and that's very convenient because that has nothing to do with us. We just want to talk all day long about all the things God may or may not do or may or may not have done. That takes the onus off us to hear this and take it to heart. But God is active today, and there's applications for us today all throughout the book. And those summations that I just recited to you are going to come into view again in our study this morning. We begin in our reading today with the first thing John sees in his actual vision. He first beholds a resurrected Jesus who commissions him to write letters to seven churches, that is, letters to churches of John's day, but seven is this number of completion which we talked about last week, meaning this is like to all the churches through all generations and all times. Now just to help you organize the book in your mind. Let's just step back for a moment. We are in this section of our study that we're calling To the Churches. And that's really concerning the first three chapters of the book, these letters to those seven churches. And we, and we get into that content, and it's very straightforward. And then it gets a little murky in chapter 4 to chapter 16. That's the part of the book that's just laden with symbols and metaphors, and some Christians interpret those things as all happening in the future. Some Christians interpret those chapters as all something that has happened in the past. That's where the disagreement comes in. And then we get to chapter 17 through 22. The last one is Cosmic Battles. 17 through 22 is, is a, a section we're calling the end and the beginning. This is where Jesus has his ultimate victory over evil and establishes his kingdom forevermore. So let me just liken our journey to like that of a relationship, a dating relationship. We're starting out and we're in the honeymoon period right now. Okay, we're, we got rose-colored glasses. Everyone said, Andrew, I just love the first week of the, this introduction to the study, and you just did a fantastic job. I was like, I haven't gotten in anything hard yet. I haven't had to say anything that's really controversial yet. I mean, just wait, guys. All right, and, and I can tell you, this is an encouragement. By chapter 17, 18, 19, we're going to be like that 90-year-old couple on the porch holding hands, all right? <laughs> we're going to ride off into the sunset together. It's the victory of Jesus. We're not going to have any problems there. But it's going to be that middle section where there's going to be some bumps in the road. There might be some differences of opinion, all right? We're going to go through this study as we always do in the Branches community, with a faithfulness, fidelity to what God's Word is saying, with humility, with generosity, and with this desire for God to actively be at work in our lives, to work in us, to build us up as believers, so I'm, I'm confident even as we go through that section. But guess what? In the end, I'll see you on the other side experiencing the victory that we have for us in Jesus. All right, let's dive into the vision of Jesus, which tees up our study for the next couple weeks here, these letters to the churches. We're going to start in verse 9. The verses will be on the screen. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pause there this morning. Next week, we'll go into the other three letters and then the final three letters the following week. Before jumping into his vision, in the first verse that we read in verse 9, John gives us a description of himself, autobiographical, and of his circumstances, the setting in which he received this vision. He refers to himself as John a brother to us and a fellow companion in the suffering that is tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. These three realities are inextricably linked, like they are glued together. They are part of one experience of being a follower of Jesus. I'm learning like with cats, with cats, scratched furniture, Two experiences. You can't, you can't separate those two. You're going to have a cat. You're going to have scratched furniture. Nobody told me about that, okay? It's the same thing. You're a Christian, and he says, these are the realities. I'm your companion. I'm your, I'm your fellow partaker of these things that are ours in Jesus. Yes, we have the kingdom, but we also have these sufferings and tribulations in the world. We're embedded in a world filled with idolatry that pursues other gods, that's filled with immorality and disgraces the morals that God has given us. It's a world with lies and greed and oppression and injustice. So you're going to suffer in this world if you're going to follow Christ. You're going to walk in the way of righteousness. And so you're going to need patient endurance until the fullness of the kingdom becomes your reward. John is doing that very thing. He's practicing that patient endurance amidst his sufferings on the island of Patmos. It was this tiny, rocky, treeless, Alcatraz-style island that served as a prison colony for the Roman Empire. John says he was there because of the Word of God and his testimony concerning Jesus. 
i.e. the Roman Empire, sentenced him to exile on Patmos because he was sharing the gospel. He was sharing and believing in the Christian message. You see, the Romans had conquered most of the known world at that point, and with every nation that they conquered, most of these nations, they kind of picked and choose their different traditions, and they'd already melded together a lot of religions. So it was no big deal for them when the Romans came in that when they were required to offer sacrifices to Rome and offer these allegiances to the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor, that is Caesar, they didn't even balk at it. They said, sure, add it to the list of things I do. It's good for my social life. You know, it's, it's part of what it means to be in the empire. This great new place. The Jews were conquered by the Romans, but they had a special exemption. They said, no way. We're not offering our allegiance to this nation. We're not going to offer sacrifices to this human being. We only offer sacrifices to the one true God. And they had an exemption in the Roman Empire just to keep things calm in their area because they kept rebelling. Now, the Christians, which came out of the Jews, you know, the, the, when they started to be seen as distinct from the Jews as their own religion, as their own people group, they weren't grandfathered into that exemption. So the Romans treated the Christians with suspicion when they wouldn't offer allegiance and when they wouldn't offer worship and sacrifices to the Roman emperor. So that's why John is on the island of Patmos. He's suffering. This is tribulation. He's been preaching this message, and he won't give it up, that there's a king that's above the king of Rome. It's Jesus Christ, and he's the king of all kings, like we saw in Revelation chapter 1. And because of that testimony, because he wouldn't relinquish it, he was exiled. He's suffering and he's enduring until his reward, resurrection life in the kingdom of God. John says on the Lord's day, he was in the spirit. A phrase used here that is very similar to the outset of Ezekiel's visions in the Old Testament. I said there's so many allusions to the Old Testament. You know, one such reference is chapter 2, verse 2 of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel says, the Spirit came upon me. So John is saying, look, same way Ezekiel received this vision of the Spirit, and it's like Scripture-level revelation. What I'm about to share with you, what I saw, it's Scripture-level revelation. He was in the Spirit when he hears this voice like a trumpet blast from behind him. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a trumpet blast or blare. Maybe you've heard a trumpet. There's been a lot of Christmas jazz going on in my house. There's a lot of trumpet playing in my house, but it's muted, you know. Maybe that's the only way you've heard a trumpet before. You know, you weren't in marching band or whatever in high school. Well, you know, think of it like an air horn. An air horn doesn't just make it like a nice note. Oh, you know, it like blares. It crackles a bit, right? And it's actually disturbing. Well, that's a tiny little trumpet, all right? Imagine that in a larger instrument, and imagine that blaring and crackling. Like that is a stunning thing to listen to. That is like a sound that can incapacitate you and stop you in your tracks. I think this all-encompassing start to this revelation would indicate to John that he's been dropped into a divine experience. You know, he's not just like sitting on a rock dehydrated, kind of like wandering in his thoughts. No, no, like this is like a real revelation of God and a divine commission that he's being given to write these letters to the seven churches. Now, John turns around to this blaring voice, and he sees a remarkable sight. I imagine it's like this dark, wallless room, and spaced around it are these seven lampstands giving off light, and among them is one like a son of man. It's Jesus standing in their midst. Now, since this is our 
first real revelation with symbols and signs, I want to remind you that a lot of what Jesus, or John sees is metaphorical in nature. It's describing real things in symbolic language. What I mean to say is, when we encounter the risen Jesus for ourselves, we may or we may not see him in the way that John describes him because he's seeing Jesus through this spiritual lens in this vision. Let me give you an example of like seeing the mundane in, in, in like a spiritual light. Take, for instance, like when Vladimir Putin signed this declaration of war, we're going to invade Ukraine. Like I'm sure it was a very mundane material sort of experience. He's sitting at his desk, probably. They put the order on his desk. He takes his pen. He signs it. And done. Invade. You know, and it's just this very mundane. It's just this very simplistic event, right? But if you could see those same experiences through a spiritual lens, I sort of imagine Putin sitting there and his eyes are black. You know, not just his eyes, but the white of his eyes, completely black, And I picture like saliva at the edges of his mouth. And he's got the pen, but the pen is actually a knife. And when he writes, the ink is blood as he commissions 200,000 people to die, including children. You know, that's looking at those events in the spiritual lens, in a spiritual reality. Now, which one conveys the truth of what happened more? Isn't that interesting that you could give the mundane telling the boring, the material telling of just, yeah, yeah, he signed the paper, done, and we're going off to war. And you can think, well, that's reality, right? But it's actually the spiritual lens that depicts reality in a truer form, even though it is symbolic. So what does John see in Jesus? These symbolic pictures, these signs and metaphors that are so true to reality. First, Jesus is wearing this long robe with a golden sash. It's similar to what the high priest would wear in his priestly duties in the Old Testament. He's got these eyes that are burning like fire, which are not only striking, but fire in the ancient world was a symbol of purification. That's how they would purify metal. It was a sign and symbol of judgment. So we have Jesus who sees all things and tests all things with his sight and sees through all things. His feet are like bronze that have been heated in the furnace, Like this burnished bronze, meaning he himself is brilliant, and he himself stands in moral purity. We've got this description of his head and his hair being white like snow. This isn't Father Time. This isn't Santa Claus. I mean, put together the other pictures here. Uh, This is a a description that's pulled from the book of Daniel chapter 7, referring to God, the Ancient of Days, when he's going to conquer with his kingdom. That same description is given to Jesus here to show how alike they are, how similar they are in the terms in which we can refer to them. His voice is like rushing waters. Maybe you saw some videos of celebrities in Montecito fleeing this last week. You know, the rains were coming down and the creeks and the rivers are overflowing and they're standing near and they're having to yell because the sound of rushing waters when you're standing next to it, it's so loud. You can barely speak over it. That's the same way God's voice is referred to In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 24, is one citation, for example. He has in his hand seven stars. His tongue is a sword, as in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, which speaks of one who would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, indicating Jesus is going to speak judgments for the church and for the world. And finally, his face shone like the sun, like the radiance, the glory of his transfiguration in the Gospels. 
When John sees Jesus in this amalgamation of different characteristics and details, he does what would be natural to all of us. He falls like a dead man. I talked about how this is part of the human flight or fight response, that when you have that flight response, sometimes your blood pressure can just drop, cutting off you know, the blood flow to your brain, and you just drop like a dead man. And he dropped like a dead man before the risen Jesus, this image, just as we would. But I want to note, for how imposing this figure is, if you really understand the picture, to stand before the brilliant and glorified Jesus. For a fellow companion, though, of the tribulation kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, there is no reason to fear Jesus places his right hand upon John, declaring in verse 17, do not be afraid. And then he launches into a bunch of descriptions about himself. He says, I'm the first and the last. You know, these are similar descriptions that God speaks of himself in chapter one. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the one who was dead and is alive and will be alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. It's not Satan. You think Satan's in control over hell. No, Jesus says, I've got the keys. I've got the keys to death in Hades. But I want you to imagine this action of Jesus toward John and the declaration that follows and what it means. I want you to do this by actually doing something tactile. Would you place your own hand upon your shoulder? Would you actually grip your shoulder? You say, oh, I don't know, it's too early for this. Don't, uh, visualization. I would have had your neighbor do it, but some of you, you're not comfortable with that. Grab your own shoulder and maybe even close your eyes and just imagine for a moment what it is to be laying before Jesus. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one, the only one who holds the keys to death and Hades, and he's placed his hand upon you. He's condescended to your level. Right now we're picturing John laid out before him, and he's actually bending his knee And the Alpha and the Omega, the one with the keys to death in Hades, is gripping John's shoulder. And before he even speaks who he is, he says, do not be afraid. Jesus has a mission for his friend John. His friend, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one with the keys to death in Hades, the one that made John drop dead on his face, places a hand upon him, comforts him, and begins to give his friend this mission to write these letters to the seven churches. And before we get into the first letter, let's consider what does this vision impress upon us, filled as it is with symbols and imagery, and maybe some of it was coming to light as we really put ourselves in the scene. I mean, we can break down the parts, and I can describe, oh, this is what this might refer to, and this might refer to, and you can do that with the whole of the book of Revelation. A lot of people do, but if you only look at the book that way, it's like looking at a Lego set that hasn't been put together. It's like, okay, I see all the pieces. What do we construct when we put the pieces together? And here, we're actually given the definition of a couple of these pieces, which is a real grace. We don't get this, I really wish, chapters 4 through 16, that Jesus would go, and this is what this is, and this is what this is. You know, in this one, he actually tells us, he goes, the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and the seven stars in my right hand are the angels, they're the messengers to these churches. So what does the whole image that John is taking in convey? Well, it's the present. The present spiritual reality. 
happening now. Jesus is among the lampstands, defined as the churches. He's not far off. He sees them, and he sees them in intricate detail, which the letters to the seven churches are going to demonstrate. He knows exactly what's going on in the lives of those believers and in those churches. He tends to the churches as a priest would tend to the lampstand in the tabernacle, the Jewish tabernacle. It was there in the place where God's presence dwelt. There was a, there was a lampstand, and that was part of the priestly duties, to tend to it. Later on in Solomon's temple, there were multiple lampstands, and the priests would tend to them. So Jesus also tends to the church, and he maintains absolute spiritual authority over the church at all times, signified in these seven stars in his right hand, which are the seven angels, the seven messengers to these churches. So John sees Jesus seeing him. That's what the vision is. John sees Jesus viewing the church, which he is a part of. It'd be like if someone walked to your front door and you've got the glass there and they can see you sitting on the couch and they ring the doorbell, but it's one of those camera doorbells. And so you're sitting on the couch and you look at your phone and you see them seeing you. Is that confusing? I hope it's not. It's supposed to be enlivening. It's supposed to be enlightening. John sees Jesus seeing him. He sees the present reality of Jesus' activity among the churches, and Jesus sees us now the same way. Jesus knows exactly what's going on in the church. He knows the churches that have given up the authority of his word. He's not unaware of those that have set aside the authority of God's word. He knows fully well. The, the churches that are moving the goalposts on morality, they say, oh, it's changing. He goes, I see that. Jesus sees the believers that have drifted into immorality or apathy. He knows which believers have stopped gathering. He knows those who have drifted into every kind of dissipation there is in drugs and alcohol and sex, the, you know, the avenues of our dissipation, the ways we can you know, disappear in society or just, you know, multiplying by the day, and he knows who's indulging in them. He knows the pride and abuses of spiritual authorities. He knows how leaders in the church have turned to greed. He knows, you know, those churches that have more in common as an institution with a business than they do in actual community. He knows the believers that have treated their commission lightly. He knows the milquetoast, generic, suburban Christianity that just dilutes the real meaning of his commands for his disciples. He knows the nation worship and the obsession with power. He knows even the hidden things of corruption and compromise in the church and in our lives. He knows it and sees it all in detail. And he's going to speak to all of it and judge it with the sword of his mouth. Starting with the first letter to Ephesus, the one letter we read today, what does Jesus say to it? And at first, it seems like they're getting a lot right. We're like, whew, everything's going great, right? Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, they resist false teachers, the so-called false apostles. Just as in today, guys, I just, I want you to understand this. I want you to be sober-minded and on your guard. False teachers do not market themselves as false teachers, they don't go, hey, guys, I'm lying to you about Jesus. Listen to me. They do exactly the opposite. They don't even say, like, I'm an average person. They come to you and say, I'm the best. They come to you and say, I'm the brightest authority. I've been given a special mission. I'm an apostle. That's exactly what they did 2,000 years ago. 
And false teachers are doing the same thing today. There are so many false apostles here in Orange County. And the Ephesians did the right thing. They tested them. They didn't just take them at their word. Oh, you seem like a nice person who loves Jesus. You know, you have my best interest at heart. Nobody would take advantage of Christians. No, they tested them. We were involved in a local conference, a mission conference of all things. We're going to reach people in Orange County. And they came to a portion of the conference where they were doing some healing, some physical healing. And we believe in physical healing. We don't think there's any reason to believe that that gift has ceased as far as what the Scriptures speak. I mean, we have testimonies of physical healing in the church. So I'm not saying anything against that. Great. But there's this guy who gets rolled up in a wheelchair. And the apostle on stage, you know, we're partnering with in this experience, tells the guy to get up and walk. And he walks. Ah! You know, he's walking. It's It's a miracle. One from our team had seen the guy walking around backstage. So he confronted this apostle and said, what in the world? I saw this guy walking around. You just declared his healing, and he stood up, and everyone cheered. He said, whoa, 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 this is what we did. You know, we, we, yes, manufactured that, but that unlocked true faith in the people that are here, which is going to unlock the real miracles in our gathering, just kind of to prime the pump for the real miracles that are going to break forth. Can you believe the rationalizations of false spiritual teachers? In their mind, they're thinking, oh, I'm doing such a great, honorable thing, right? That is manipulation 101. Test the false apostles and see that they are false. I can give you account after account, and at some point it's going to be helpful to give some of the accounts of the tools and the methods that I've encountered that are being used today. But they tested. The point is they tested those false apostles, and they were found false. Later, Jesus also gives them credit for rejecting the Nicolaitans. We don't know these guys, but they were probably a group that had compromised with the Romans and said, you could be part of the church and you could offer sacrifices to the emperor, or you could participate in the cult of Artemis, which was famed in the city of Ephesus and was the hub of the social life and commerce and so on and so forth. Brass tacks is the church was doctrinally pure in their thinking and beliefs. Great. But this was their problem, and it's a biggie. Verse 4 They had forsaken their love they had at first. Repent, Jesus says in verse 5, or I will remove your lampstand from its place. I'll come to you and remove you from among the churches. The stakes are high. The stakes are high with this one. I remember a time in my life when the stakes were high. I had gone to Rock Harbor. We were formerly Rock Harbor, Huntington Beach. When we planted, you know, six years ago or so, And there were some changes happening in Rock Harbor, not good or bad, just changes. And I'd gone to the leadership and I'd said, I'm requesting to plant this community as an independent church or to plant a community out of this community in Huntington Beach. Feel like we just have a different vision God is giving us. And they initially said yes. And then they said, wait, don't talk to anybody about it. And then they said, you know what? No, we're not going to do that anymore. And I got called in this late night meeting and they gave me two options to start with. They said, here's your two options. You can back away from seeking to plant the community. Or you can plant the church 25 miles away. Those are your two options. And I considered those for a few moments. And I said, well, is there a third option? A third option, you're fired. Stakes are high, right? I walked through door number three. The rest of the story, you know, it goes on and on and on. We're on great terms now. Just preach there. It's all wonderful. It was a stressful time for everybody involved. Everything is great. Fully unified elders have had, you know, communion together, fellowship, great. But I'm telling you, 
that was a moment where a big decision was taking place. My fate hung in the balance. And here, the stakes are extremely high for the church of Ephesus. Jesus is saying, I will fire you. I will fire you from your role in my church. So there's very little else this can mean, this falling from that love, except that the Ephesians had turned their faith into this loveless but rigid religion, correct as it was in its thinking, but devoid in genuine love for God. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, if I can fathom all the mysteries and I have all this knowledge and I'm just perfectly aligned with the truth of God, but if I don't have love, I am nothing. So they could be the most brilliant and accurate theologians regarding Jesus and everything that's found in the New Testament, but because they had no heart, their body was as good as dead. Think about it from a, a, a physical standpoint. Your brain, your thinking depends first upon your heart to transport, like I talked about earlier, you know, you're fainting, the blood pressure dropping. It's because your brain can't function. Your heart hasn't pumped the blood to it. So our spiritual thinking our spiritual minds are dependent upon our spiritual heart that is enlivened by the Holy Spirit. You don't see Jesus saying, guys, you don't need discernment. It's not a big deal for you guys to have the right doctrine and the right thinking. That's not what he says at all. It's not like, oh, it's all about love, guys. Just love, and that's fine, and you don't need to worry about false teaching. No, he says that's good, but it's not enough. So what are they supposed to do? The church is called to repent and do the things they did at first. It's amazing to think that when we come to Jesus, the call is repentance, to leave the ways of the world, to change our ways of thinking, behaving, and to begin to align ourselves with God. But he's telling a group of people who have already repented to repent again. The change we go through when we come to God initially is not a one time for one season of our life sort of change. It's not this one period where we have this passion, this love for God and for our brothers and sisters. Our change and repentance is meant for all times. Jesus says, change again and do what you did again, like what you did when you first changed. They started with momentum and things had slowed down and turned into this other like just life of turmoil of just working out the hard things of God without the heart of God. And Jesus says, I see you, and I know your deeds, and I know where your heart is at. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who wants to listen to these words and take them to heart, who is victorious, who conquers and overcomes, like John is facing suffering and tribulations, but he's got this patient endurance. He's going to keep on with Jesus and the way of Jesus. For the same one who does that, I'm going to give the right to eat from the tree of life. This picture of Eden restored, you know, the, the world before sin and death entered into it. So if we want that kingdom prize, we have to be those who conquer as well, who face the tribulations and sufferings of this world with patient endurance, who heed Jesus' words until our own resurrection. Guys, I was a runner for a time. It's already past tense. I may yet be again. Look how far I've fallen. Third, November and December, I was, I was sick, guys. All right, all right, I got off the horse. We get back on the horse. If you've ran, you know what it is to run without wind, and you know what it is to run into the wind. Huntington Beach, come on, you guys have biked the boardwalk, right? You fly one direction, 
You're being pushed by the wind and you don't even know it. It's like, wow, I'm really athletic. And then you go home and it's into the wind and you're like, barely staying like upright because you're not making any progress. Like that is our Christian experience in the world. The environment that we are in is an environment of suffering that opposes what Jesus stands for. You know, it it will do everything, your life, without even having to try. I mean, just being in this world, it will do everything it can to slow you down, to wear down your love for God and your love for other people. So you come out of the gate with all this excitement, all this energy for Jesus, and you start loving other people, and then you get hurt in church community of all places. And what does that do? I mean, that's natural in the world, but for us, that slows us down. That's those headwinds begin to hit. Oh, I got all this love for God, passion for the faith, but then my expectations for how my spiritual life was going to play out, crushed by the hardships that I experienced. And so that love begins to be whittled down. That's the headwinds of this world. We're working against those headwinds. But the one who conquers is the one who pushes forward with patient endurance and keeps up the good fight of love. That's what Jesus is calling for in the Ephesian church. And they're the ones who receive the reward. Let me finish with a couple final thoughts. I know we only have five minutes here. We're not going to be ruled by the clock in this series in the book of Revelation. But let me finish with these thoughts. Number one, partaking in Jesus means association with the kingdom. Amen. And suffering or tribulation and patient endurance. Partaking with Jesus means 100%. There's no other experience of being a Christian. It means partaking in the kingdom, yes, and suffering, tribulation, and patient endurance. There is not another form of following Jesus except that you're going to have all those experiences, just like John did. Maybe we haven't been exiled to an island, but guys, the only way that you can avoid tribulation and suffering to a degree and needing that patient endurance is if you take the gospel and you just take the grace and the mercy out of it for yourself and then you go live whatever kind of life you want to live and you think that that's Christianity. No, have you actually tried to follow the commands that Jesus commissioned us to follow? He said, I want you to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. If you try to practice that, if you try to love in the way that Jesus did in this world, I don't care if you're in the most affluent and seemingly free society in the world, you will encounter suffering and tribulation. You will encounter headwinds, and it will require patient endurance from you. With Christianity, I've said this before, if it burns, that means it's working. You know, it's like when you put that medicine on the wound. Ah! You know, why does it hurt worse? Well, it's working. It's helping you. It's healing you. The same is true for our life of following Jesus. Number two, Jesus evokes fear in the disobedient and comfort for the repentant. To the unrepentant church or to the unrepentant average person, it's a scary thing to fall into the hands of God. To have the fire of his eyes see into your heart, to see into your motives, to see through you, and to test you. That is a very frightening thing, to behold Jesus in the way that John beholds him. But for the repentant, I didn't say the perfect. I didn't say you're doing everything exactly right. 
so you're comforted and you feel joy. I said, the repentant, those who seek to change. There is comfort in this vision of Jesus. We look at Jesus' burning eyes of fire, and we're not afraid of them. We say, we welcome them. We say, look into my heart. Look into my soul. Would you remove everything in me that is sin? Would you remove everything in me that is displeasing to you? For a fellow partaker in the kingdom, the suffering, and the patient endurance, there's the right hand of Jesus upon our shoulder telling us, do not be afraid. For the repentant, there's comfort. Finally, number three, I want us to realize Jesus sees and knows it all. Don't think he isn't aware of precisely exactly what is going on in every church across America right now, in every church across Orange County right now, in every church and gathering in Huntington Beach, and in precisely what's happening here in the Branches community. He is fully aware of everything that happens, and he sees it all in detail. He tends to this lampstand. He knows the participating members, right? He knows the fidelity to the truth. He also knows the compromise or apathy. He sees our deeds and has thoughts and directives for us right now, just as he did for those churches. What John saw is more true than what we see with our eyes. It's the spiritual reality that's taking place even right now. So I want us to accept that reality for ourselves in a posture of prayer. Would you pray with me as we consider these words? We may go a few minutes over our time, and you know, if you've got obligations, you've got to grab your kids, you can leave, you can leave during a time of worship when you need to. I also just don't want to rush through what Jesus would want to speak to me, what Jesus would want to speak to any of us here. So if you have the capacity, let's just spend some time in prayer for a moment. And what I want us to bring into prayer is, Jesus, what do you see in me? If you see me, if you see this church, if you see us in Huntington Beach at this time in history, if you're standing among the churches, tending to them, you have those eyes. You have that word that can cut, divide our soul and spirit, our bone and marrow. Then, Lord, as the repentant, as those who seek change, as those who are leaning on the grace of the cross, would you speak to us? What do you see when you see us? What do you see in our own lives? Heavenly Father, would you give us insight? Maybe it is that we just lost our momentum. We've fallen from the heights of our passion and our love, our love for you, the way that's expressed, and our love for others around us. We've hit the headwinds of this world. That's common to everybody. It's not just us. We all hit those headwinds. But Lord, you're calling us to be a conqueror, to be victorious, to fight onward against the headwinds of this culture, against this world. Jesus, where there's fear that we're not perfect or that we're not getting things right, I just think, what are you even calling forth of the Ephesians? You're telling them they're not loving. It's not that you put this burdensome command on them that they can't fulfill and it's so hard and it robs them of joy. God, you're calling them into joy. You're calling them into blessing. You're calling them into alignment with your heart that their mind would be awakened not just as it is, but in a, in a truer sense, what your true purpose is. So Lord, I ask for the same thing. When you see us and you, and you cut through our motives and you cut through the actions of our life right now, 
Would it be for our restoration? Would it be for building us up? Would it be for enlivening us again to your work in your kingdom? So Jesus, I just want to give a few moments. Would you speak to my brothers and sisters, my, my fellow partakers, those who are locking arms with me, brothers and sisters in your kingdom, in the suffering, the tribulation, in the patient endurance that are ours in you, Jesus. Speak to them. Tell them what you see in them. maybe some in this room this morning haven't heard your voice clearly yet but I pray that they would just continue listening and yearning for you to speak for those who have heard you tell us heed and obey the person who hears your word and takes it to heart they are blessed Lord those who have ears to hear let them hear let them be changed let us repent Lord repentance isn't just a change for one time in our life we want to be renewed and changed again and again and again by your Holy Spirit so we receive the gift and blessing it is to know you and to know you in a deeper way. Increase our love. Increase our faithfulness to you, our endurance in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.